The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. It's a relatively simple process with profound results, and it accesses the deep brain. It seems like, you know, talk therapy accesses more that prefrontal cortex and language centers. And it's important when we want to neutralize and process trauma to access the deeper brain, which is at the back. The training is very experiential in that you're doing it to someone and then they're doing it to you. And then you're watching the practitioner and the big group do that same thing to one person as like an expert, guide them through it and everyone's watching but you're like healing together. Welcome to season three of Students of Mind, the podcast that's all about opening up and normalizing discussions about mental health in ways that anyone can comprehend. In the first two seasons, we sat down with mental health experts and survivors to give you a full circle picture of each topic. In this new season, we will continue to explore the world of mental health through the insights of experts, healers, and individuals with lived experience. From alternative healing modalities to living with multiple illnesses, this season we will cover a wide range of topics with the help of a diverse selection of guests. My name is Jade, and for today's episode, I'm joined by therapists Jennifer Delaney and Joel Blackstock to talk about the healing modality brain spotting. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Hey, Students of Mind listeners. Before we start with this episode, I want to share with you a new offering that I have. Are you overwhelmed with the process of searching for and reaching out to quality mental health care? Are you experiencing burnout around finding the care that you need? Well, I am here to support you through it. Navigating the mental health care system can be confusing, exhausting, and time-consuming. I know this. I've been there. I help individuals find mental health providers and services, share tools to navigate your health insurance, and share my tips, tricks, and advice after having navigated the mental health care system for over 10 years. I have two offerings to help you find care. One option is a one-on-one virtual sister session 
where you and I sit down on a call for two hours and do a comprehensive search for providers that meet your needs. We will also make an outreach plan so you can get access to the care we found in a timely manner. Don't have time to sit down with me for two hours to talk about everything? No worries. I also have an option of a customized mental health resource list. You fill out a short questionnaire and I utilize your answers to put together a customized mental health resource sheet with providers and supports that align with your needs. Customized resource sheets come with a 30-minute follow-up or accountability call to make sure you are staying on track with your search. Trust me, I know this process is not easy and it's common to want to give up, but I want you to know that it's more than worth the struggle and the stress to get access to the care that you need and deserve. So, go to studentsofmind.com slash sister sessions to learn more and choose a service that could help you get started or get back on track with your mental health journey. I look forward to supporting you on your mental health journey. Today's first guest is Jennifer Delaney. Jennifer is a blogger, writing coach, speaker, and body-centered psychotherapist who specializes in brain spotting. After being a dancer in her 20s, Jennifer received her master's in counseling and went on to start her own practice. Jennifer works with individuals who struggle in relationships due to parental wounding through brain spotting, and today that's what we're going to be talking about. All right, great. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you, Jade, for having me. Of course. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Um, Before we get into the discussion, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. So my name is Jennifer Delaney, and it's been a winding road to become a counselor. I started as a professional dancer, and that ultimately influenced me or inspired me to study a body-centered form of therapy, brain spotting. Um, After that, I raised two wonderful, powerful daughters, and one of them is actually an internship, becoming a marriage and family therapist right now. And then um, I got a master's in writing. So I was, you know, doing some reporting and publishing and also being a writing coach, which ultimately I found people's writer's block would um, go lead back to their childhood trauma. So eventually I always knew I'd become a counselor. So I got a master's in counseling and I'm a teletherapist in private practice. Um, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I mainly work with um, individuals struggling with complex trauma, um, and that might show up not necessarily in their career, but more in their relationships. And I find that they struggle with boundaries and perfectionism and isolation. So I started a five-week group that I've run now five times, um, and I'd like to continue running. It's a parental wounds workshop, and it teaches skills, and it helps people um, move beyond the symptoms to create to create healthier relationships. That's really interesting how you got into this work through through being a dancer. Um, I was I also used to be a dancer, so I know how 
connected you are to your body when you're in that industry. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So let's get into the topic of today. We're going to talk about brain spotting, which I actually have had a few sessions of brain spotting myself. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about this with you. Um, my first question is just what is brain spotting? Um, how long has it been around and what does it treat? Sure. So I think that's amazing that you've gotten some sessions because it is an experiential form. So it makes it very hard to explain to people. But I do try because, you know, people want to know what it's about. But it's a relatively simple process with profound results. And it accesses the deep brain. It seems like, you know, talk therapy accesses more that prefrontal cortex and language centers. And it's important when we want to neutralize and process trauma to access the deeper brain, which is at the back, the limbic and the reptilian brain. So um, at any rate, it was created in 2003 by David Grand. And, you know, it treats a whole spectrum uh, from first responders who use it with PTSD all the way to there's a form called expansion brain spotting that expands a person's capacity um, for calm and love. And it helps them access sort of who they really are. And it gives them more of a vision of who they could be. So it, it really treats a range. Um, primarily, people come when they have some form of trauma. Uh, and talk therapy is really integrated into the brain spotting, but brain spotting, because it's very stream of conscious and, and it's more non-linear, you know, non um, so that's, it combines four real aspects, and that is um, the attunement of the therapist. So trusting me and how I connect with people and how I show up for them, uh, you know, allows for an opening to happen. And then the bilateral music, bilateral just means it goes back and forth from ear to ear. And we keep that really low so that they can hear me as well. But that kind of throws off that prefrontal, that thinking brain so that we can access the um, primal brain. Uh, and and so, and then we have the brain spot, which, which we find with a pointer. That is a point that just feels a little more triggering, a little more. It's an access point. So people might feel their hands get hot or, um, you know, they might feel a little more nervous. So we find that spot um, as well as checking in with the body. That check-in um, permits people that, that deep brain because really the physical and emotional are very related. So some people in brain's body are, are going to show up very emotional and crying right away. And other people are not. They're very, their cards are close to their chest, but they'll be like, I'm not sure, but my feet are wiggling and my I'm twitching. I'm very twitchy or I'm very hot in my center, you know. So some people are much more somatic, body-centered, and other people are more emotional. And both of those are kind of interchangeable in the process. Yeah, it's interesting. And in, in my experience, I I get the like hot hands and I get like super exhausted, like could fall asleep type of exhaustion. So yeah, yeah it's interesting that like physical things that happen during the session. You know, I've only had two people fall asleep and um, I did, you know, I didn't let them sleep long. <laughs> um, maybe they were asleep five minutes, but one of them said she'd never in her body experienced that kind of profound relaxation. It wasn't quite sleep, she said. And then another person once said, um, my dream led right back to insight. And so falling asleep is and getting people are going, how can this be so tiring? <laughs> because it seems so simple, you know, but it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So 
let's talk about the the process of of brand spotting and what it looks like so the the whole process of um preparing clients for brain spotting the actual session and then after brain spotting how you support the clients what does that look like sure so let's see before i see a client you know i have them uh, i'm usually meet for a free consult for 20 minutes so i get a sense of what they what might be needing and they fill out of course an intake form it's pretty traditional that way through a medical portal you know all the information and and then i i tell them how to download the bilateral music for the session so you know through through spotify or apple music or some, in some form they can download that anybody can really use bilateral music um, it's very helpful for anybody. Um, and and so, yeah, I explain brain spotting a little bit and, and I affirm that they'll they'll feel better doing it because it's so experiential. But I use the intake then in session as a resource. And then we set the frame. I kind of find out the first 10 minutes, you know, what what's happening today? Because a lot of times what's happening, a conversation maybe someone had with their sister or their boss Um, You know, they're like, no, I really wanted to come and work on some childhood trauma. And I'm like, well, trust the brain because the brain really start if you start with what's happening today, it'll take people where they need to go. So I just, you know, we chat and then we uh, go ahead and, and start the process. You know, I teach them that process. And uh, it seems like everyone afterwards responds differently. Um, You know, at the last 10 minutes, I make sure I do some exercise that helps them just so they're not walking out dysregulated. Um, I teach these exercises that stimulate the vagus nerve. And, and the vagus nerve is a long nerve from the brain to the gut that if we stimulate it and create vagal tone, people feel a little less hypervigilant. So they walk out with exercises that they could practice um, at home if they feel escalated. But most people feel a sense of relief and, and feel a little calmer. And then they might, you know, a few days later, it might rise up again, whatever the issue is. But this way, the brain, that's how the brain heals is that we rise the issue up and then it calms way down, then it rises up again. And, and that kind of up and down process is what helps create relief. Um, but th- those are some of the ways, yeah, that I help them afterwards. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a very like well-rounded, holistic experience. Um, and I'm wondering, I want to go a little further into uh, like the bilateral aspect and the eye movement aspect. Um, so like what exactly is that doing um, when the patient is following the pointer and then what exactly is the bilateral music doing? Oh, good. Yeah, those are great questions. So bilateral music serves two purposes. And one is that it stimulates the calming part of the nervous system, the parasympathetic. Um, And so that helps have, you know, a calm in the presence or parallel to activation to the trauma. Um, So it'll kind of hold the client, but it also distracts the prefrontal cortex. You know, our thinking brain always wants to take over. You know, I have to remind people to come back. What's going on in your body again? What's going on in emotions? Because our brain wants to figure everything out. Why, why, why? But unfortunately, that's where kind of the issues are in is in our thinking, you know, that can cause problems for us. So we want to distract that part of the brain. So the bilateral music does that. It helps, which is, is related to something really interesting called the orienting reflex. So out in nature, if a deer hears something in the bush, you know, it kind of pops up and looks that direction. 
And then it hears something on the other, the wind blows and it hears something over there and it looks the other way. So our brain, as the music is going back and forth, it's creating that orienting reflex and that's what distracts us. So I, I love how many of the things in body-centered forms of therapy relate right back to animals because of course we are animals and so we can learn a lot from them. But, um, and then the brain spot itself, um, you know, David Grand also calls brain spotting focused mindfulness. And there's something about having a single focus. Most of us in brain spotting um, keep the pointer still. So it's not a movement. Every now and then, you know, if, if the client responds to rolling brain spotting, which means we just kind of keep moving it back and forth real slowly, then we'll adapt that to the client for sure. But for most of us, we're just finding that single spot. And, and it's something about combining that single spot with the other factors that creates access to the deep brain. Very cool. This is, I, I feel like this is different from a lot of other healing modalities. So can you talk about that? Like what, what about brain spotting differentiates it from other types of healing? Sure. So it seems like, you know, there's so much going on in the brain and so much going on in our subconscious mind that we're not even aware of. So, you know, trying to just talk through things often isn't helpful for people. I really encourage mindful, a mindful practice in some way, because it helps us really understand what's happening in our thinking. But um, also, you know, we don't have to touch in on every single trauma, like in psychoanalysis, you know, where people are in it for 20 years, and they think that they have to remember everything. We don't remember, we don't remember most anything. And when we do remember it, what I found out recently, we only remember the last time we remembered it. So we're adding in all sorts of things to our memories. So really, it's more about allowing, um, I, I compare it to the immune system, you know, our immune system seeks out anomalies, so we can get better. And our brain really wants to get better. So if we give it the space to sort of put things together outside of language, which seems really inconceivable, but it, it really does start to create a healing. So another thing I really appreciate um, is how David Grand helps us to perceive the therapeutic process. We aren't the authorities. The client's brain knows how to heal themselves, not us. So we try to empower the client by teaching the process um, and then getting out of the way because too many protocols can often get in the way of a client's process, you know, some therapists or, you know, might have a brilliant idea or I might come up with, oh, that's amazing. I need to tell them that. But if it's not coming from the client, either I might've totally missed the point and they might be like, well, that's really off track. And then it throws them off or it might, you know, need to come from their own body, that understanding. So I love the philosophy of brain spotting. Um, another thing is we don't really, you know, call anything disorders, um, it's not, you know, that's so medical, it's so pathologizing. And there are biological things like bipolar disorder or, or schizophrenia that can be inherited and genetic. But most things are just, they're phenomena. They're things that happen because we've had some childhood trauma and then we've developed these coping mechanisms that no longer serve us. So I love the word phenomena or phenomenon because it's something that just happened. It's usually a, the brain's brilliant way of, of protecting us. And, um, you know, instead we're calling it a disorder, but really people can heal from these things. And that's what, what is so amazing. That's, that's what I love about brain spotting. <laughs> yeah. And I love that, that language use you use, because I feel like that also takes the shame out of, 
Um, I know a lot of people feel a lot of shame when they're diagnosed with a disorder or disease or something. And the language you use, I feel like, takes a lot of that shame out of it. Yeah. And of course, people feel so much relief, even when they find out about complex trauma, you know, and no, everybody is, you know, people walking around with complex trauma, nobody knows about it. And so they don't treat it like, you know, they don't expect people with a broken leg to run a marathon. And, and they're just so anyway, it can be really helpful to see a list of symptoms, but then to also perceive it as something that is this action I'm doing, this reaction I'm having is born out of you know, a long time response to, to abuse or something so that that can be shifted. Yeah, I do feel like language is important. Yeah, very much so. So my next question is, if someone listening uh, is hearing this and thinks that brain spotting may be for them, where should they start? Sure. There's an international directory on brainspotting.com that's helpful. We have a local one in Colorado called Rocky Mountain Brain Spotting Institute. They actually have a scholarship program that they give 10 sessions to people who qualify. There's also um, Psychology Today. You know, you can just put that in the search and that can be helpful. Um, yeah. Okay, great. So my last question, um, this season, I'm asking every guest this question, because I really want to emphasize the importance of self care to my audience. Um, So my question for you is, what is one thing you do each day to maintain mental wellness? Sure, I think in this field, we have lots of things. So it's like, I'm like, which I pick, right? (laughs) Because, you know, we're holding space for a lot of really intense stuff. But I would say that my favorite one is that I've never stopped dancing. I occasionally perform. And if I can't get to a dance, I I take class with a couple company classes. And if I can't do that, then I'll find a YouTube um, so that I can dance, you know. (laughs) I love that so much. That's so wonderful. Um, Do you still dance? I haven't. And actually, when the pandemic hit, that's when I stopped. Um, but like I had stopped f- since high school and then started taking classes at a studio like around my home. Uh, but then COVID hit and that stopped. But you're inspiring me to get back into it. <laughs> well, it's funny. I never would have thought of taking a dance class on like YouTube. But because of COVID, my, the company classes I were taking went online. Okay. So I was like clearing <laughs> clearing coffee tables out of the way, you know, and so now I'm a little more receptive. <laughs> That's so that. funny. Yeah. Uh, okay. Before we close out, um, can you give us some ways that we can stay up to date with you and the work that you're doing? Oh, sure. Yes. I mean, you could search Jen Delaney Counselor on um, Instagram or on YouTube. I have a website and a pretty much I write twice a month on the blog and that's at jenniferdelaney.com. Um, any questions, you can reach me at jen at jenniferdelaney.com. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned so much even doing brain spotting myself so i know a lot of people will learn something from this so thank you for being here well thank you so much for this interview i've enjoyed meeting you (laughs) are you like me and struggle with the overwhelm that comes with consuming news and media in general with so many different news and information sources it can be stressful trying to figure out where to start and what to consume 
Well, I'd like to share with you a platform that has made consuming news and information more digestible for me. Newsly is an all-in-one audio listening app for iOS and Android devices. It picks out the top trending articles on the web on topics you choose and reads them to you in a natural human voice. With Newsly, the entire web becomes listenable, all in one place. Follow topics as broad as sports or as specific as generalized anxiety disorder. For me, this app has been great in staying up to date with the latest research in the mental health field. And Newsly features podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 80 countries, including students of mind. So if you're interested in shifting the way you consume information, be sure to download and use Newsly for free now by going to www.newsly.me or by clicking the link in the description. And you can use promo code STUDENTS to receive a one-month free premium subscription. Today's second guest is Joel Blackstock. Joel is a licensed therapist based in Alabama. Joel is an EMDR and brain-spotting trained clinician who often utilizes depth psychology and existential approaches to help clients see their life and themselves in a healthy way. All right. Good morning, Joel. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Jade. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. Well, um, I think the past couple years have been me doing things on accident. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so I'm a social worker and I was a social worker on an assertive community treatment team um, and I had, and before I had children. And if anyone's not familiar with those models, what it is, is in the 50s, uh, it was just too easy to commit people. And so you have like those famous case in Birmingham where I live where a psychiatrist was like, well, I don't like who my daughter's marrying, so I'm going to put her in asylum for 30 years. Um, and so then in the 60s, in the, there's a lot more push for patient rights. And um, one of the things that happens is there's this mass deinstitutionalization where they're like, okay, you can't keep anybody unless they're actively suicidal or homicidal. They were suicidal yesterday, can't keep them. They have to be suicidal right now. And that's, you know, a win for, uh, you know, freedom. But we didn't have anything built to deal with the people who need help and can't live independently, but also are not actively suicidal or homicidal, which is a lot of people. And so with assertive community treatment, the people who have fallen through the cracks of, um, you know, they've been in Bryce, which is our state mental institution, you know, 10, 15 times. They have, most of them have schizophrenia um, that's very treatment resistant. Sometimes you get substance abuse that's inflaming like a mood disorder or a, something but it's usually a thought disorder and then also like comorbid with drug addiction or something and and they're chronically homeless and they go to the er and the er gives them a sandwich and says fill this script for an antipsychotic that you for a condition you don't understand with money you don't have at a cvs you can't get to and then the patient's like i'm the king of england and then they leave and then they do that every week and so that costs alabama's medicaid system about um well actually i don't know the, the whole number i don't have that in front of me but every 
person on an assertive community treatment team who's able to help those people stay housed by saying like, all right, I'm going to help you cash your disability check. I'm going to pay rent with you. We're going to go buy groceries. You know, 70% of people, when you put them in a house, they just quit using drugs. Like they were doing it because they were homeless. 30% do need some treatment. Um, and so a lot of times there's harm reduction there where you're like, hey, will you spend $20 on crack this week? And then we can get groceries with the rest of it. And then that way you're not going to get kicked out. And, and um, so it's kind of negotiating. It's very long-term work because the people, um, you know, take a long time to make progress. And it, just building a relationship so somebody who's never trusted anybody can trust you requires you, you know, crawling into a lot of abandoned buildings and buying a lot of fast food and hanging out with them um, for, you know, a year. But they did a big study on our team and all the social workers that, you know, are making 30000 a year save um, the state $1.7 million per patient that they see. And everybody on that team could see about 14 people. So, you know, when you see people being like, well, we're just not going to save taxes by getting rid of the social safety. And it's not ever about that. You know, you can look at pie charts and it's not about that. I don't know if that's too much information, but that was going on. It worked really well until I had kids and then I just couldn't be on call 24 seven and the job never turned off. Um, also, I was not, I was fine to inhale all the bed bug poison myself as I drove around and the bug bomb cloud in my car, but I didn't really want my kids to, there were just a lot of things that no longer fit the speed of my life. And so I went into private practice with a small company and then one of the people there um, left and I was nervous that I could go into private practice. Like I didn't really know how to do it. Um, and then it, I was really interested. I was really in, into it and um, it went really well. And I got into EMDR and then EMDR led me into brain spotting, which we can get to in a minute. Um, and I was kind of confused about all the stuff that I learned in school because it didn't work clinically. And also I never felt like it would work. Like when I was absorbing on the CBT stuff, it was like, what? It seems like everybody who wanted help, this would have occurred to them to do anyway. Like you're kind of, I don't know. I, and a lot of CBT practitioners that were saying they were CBT practitioners, I was listening to what they actually did. And it was like, well, I mean, this isn't CBT though. This is something that you came up with that has more to do with attachment or whatever. Um, and so I got really into somatic stuff and uh, there were some things about being part of a bigger firm that I felt like were blocking my ability to do care. And so I needed to go out on my own. There were some people that were leaving the place that I was at and um, but I wasn't ready. So I feel like I accidentally ended up in private practice and then was like, oh no, now I have to buy out of my contract and set up my own shop because I need a place to work and I'm kind of worried about the long-term viability of this. And so then found myself in private practice again, terrified, didn't know if I could do it. Um, within three months, um, brain spotting was really blowing up at that point, the demand for it. Um, and so I worked, it was like within three months, I had a wait list of a year and a half and was like, you know, I'll never get to this and there's no other providers here. And I'll get to more about how I'd gotten into brain spotting, but I couldn't even find it here, which is one of the reasons I was doing trainings was just to have the treatment. And then um, there were some people who were good who were in the hospital and were like, how do you get into private practice? You know, we want to have good work. We want to do work and you got in and it was like, look, if you can get these trainings, nobody else has them. And the people that I'm talking to are not curious enough to get them. Like I'm saying, like you can go deep into the body brain, you can get limbic transference out. And they're just telling me why supportive counseling can also do that, which just isn't true, you know, and but I can't teach you how to be curious. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters if you know what you don't know. And so these people got the training and came into private practice with me. And I told them like, this is what I spent to go into this, you know, the right way. And this is what I would need every month if we bundled our costs and, and kept it going from a percentage of what you see. But also, I'll tell you everything I did. You can go out and compete with me. Like, I don't want anyone to make 
less money here than they would individually. I want them to make, I want to, you know, collectivize labor to have more money than we would have individually. Because I, I, I believe strongly in collectivizing labor. And so we did that and everybody did really well. And then I was the clinical director of something, which was not anything that I ever really wanted to do. I'm not a detail person. And so I don't know, hopefully that grows and it's something that we can get, you know, a, more of the procedures that are effective in the area because um, there's not a lot of that here and we can empower good clinicians. If it doesn't work, I got good people in a private practice. I'll just go back into private practice myself and be a therapist. If it does work, I really would like somebody else to be clinical director eventually. If anyone wants to be clinical director of a brain-based medicine clinic, it's not my dream, um, but it it's kind of neat. And I it's like, it was so in crisis trying to do the next thing and the next thing that it almost was like, Four years later, it was like, what did I do? Oh my gosh! Like, what? What? Is, what is this? You know. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but um, oh yeah, yeah. So it kind of ended up filling a need that I felt intuitively, uh, and maybe in hindsight, I felt it more intuitively than I did consciously. Um, but you know, built Taproot Therapy, and then that was that was that. Great. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that you went into detail about that because I feel like when we see therapists or uh, mental health professionals, we don't really get to see or, or learn about the process that you guys go through when um, getting into private practice. And I know that there's always a lot of steps before that. So that's that's great. And, and congratulations on, on getting into private practice. I know that that's a big step. Well, and I mean, that's one of the reasons I think it's important to say that is that like the profession has such low self-esteem, especially social workers. I mean, LPC is a little bit too, but there's this idea of like, wait, I can do that. I'm allowed to do that. And it's like, yes, you're licensed to do it. Like you do it. Psychiatrists spend five minutes with you and they write medication and not yeah. everywhere in the world. I mean, I don't want to pay it with too broad a brush, but the industry pushed billing and student debt to a place where that's what they do. And they used to do Irvin Yalin. They used to sit down and talk to you for an hour and then write medication afterwards. And on TV shows, they still do that. They don't do that in real life. I mean, if you find a therapist, you find a psychiatrist here that's doing therapy, they're 80 years old. And and there are some. There's an 80-year-old therapist that does Ericksonian hypnosis, and it's, it's cool. But they're not coming out of med school and doing that because they've never been in therapy, probably, as patients. And if they got any psych training, it was like, okay, go to the ER and watch people come in, you know, and then maybe sit in a psych clinic for a little bit and watch the other person give medication. But they're not looking at what the therapists are doing. They don't have any experience one way or the other. So... It's not their fault, but, you know, where does the profession of clinical therapy go, you know, and we're still leaving it up to psychiatrists and we're still like expecting them to do this. And it's like social workers have to step up. You have to realize you can do this and what you're worth. And, you know, we're all wounded healers. So there's some things that go along with, with that that I think inform the way people think about themselves in the profession. Definitely. And I think that's a great segue into our topic of today, because I, I really... Um, I already had a conversation with someone about brain spotting, but afterwards I was really interested in the training piece because I know that usually uh, brain spotting practitioners do brain spotting themselves to be able to um, utilize it for their patients. So I'm really interested mm -hmm. in talking about the training process. But before we get into that, can you talk about what led to you becoming a brain spotting practitioner? Like what drew you to this type of modality? Sure. You, you mind if I ask who you talk to? I'm curious if I know. Jennifer Delaney. 
Okay. Yeah, I've seen some of her stuff. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big world. I mean, it's a very open modality. So a lot of people are different. I mean, what I say may be different than what somebody else says, and that doesn't mean that I'm saying they're wrong. I just want to be clear. It's just kind of the way that I do it. And um, so I guess when I was coming through school, I was a comparative religion major at Swanee when I got a bachelor's degree. So I was interested in like the unconscious and Jung and mythology. And then there was this in- insecurity when I was coming into the profession of like, oh, that's woo woo and out there. I can't do that. And I was listening to all these like lectures from Jungian analysts in the 70s and 80s and um, I really liked it. I thought it was like relevant and interesting. And um, well, you have to learn a lot of terminology with Jungians. There's a ton of uh, like, it's just kind of its own language. But um, I went into the profession. I was like trying to do cognitive stuff. Patients didn't really like it. I didn't really like it. I read every book. I was like, okay, well, I just haven't read the right thing. And I kept like reading cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavior therapy things. And it was like, yeah, yeah, this is great after the body is okay and the system's not in crisis, but like you can't tell it. I mean, you can only tell this to people that are already there, you know, like, and I ended up working with dissociation a lot. Um, and it's just like, you can't do talk therapy with somebody who's dissociated, you know, but you can still do therapy, but you have to go into the mind through the body. And um, brain-based medicine was getting bigger as a discipline. So I, I, I was trying to get all these trainings to go into private practice at the first firm because I was afraid that I was going from a salary in a hospital, which wasn't a lot to, a, you know, a percentage job then I wasn't ever going to be able to eat. So, and I had a kid at that point. So um, I got EMDR training, all this stuff. So EMDR seemed really interesting to me because um, you were trying to push somebody somewhere that was, you know, deeper than thinking. And I saw patients go there. Um, And I was an EMDR clinician for about two weeks. And I was like, sure of two things. I've seen a ton of patients. Like I worked, um, a lot of people were like, why are you doing this? And I was like, well, I'm working the same hours I worked in the hospital. You know, you're supposed to work 11 hours a day. (laughs) Nobody does this. So I think it was kind of trial by fire that I I was trying it on like very traumatized people, like a very complex trauma clinic was where I was. But then also I was just seeing a ton of people. So I was like, really making connections fast. And I was sure of two things. Like one, EMDR works for about 30% of certain diagnoses and it doesn't do anything for the other 70%. I was in the 70% that it didn't do anything for. Maybe it's closer to 65. I mean, this isn't research numbers. This is, you know, my subjective opinion and then talking to people in consultation groups and things. Um, And then so it's like, what is the difference? You know, and I realized that, you know, trauma patients a lot of times are hypervigilant they don't like, especially intuitive ones, like they don't like things like advertising because they can feel themselves being manipulated. And they're like, no, 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 get out of my head. I know what I think. Stop. Um, And so when you're doing hypnosis, when you're doing cognitive framing for EMDR, you're kind of doing that. And they're resistant to it. And even if they know you're trying to help them intellectually, emotionally, they don't know that. And you can do reams of attachment work and all this stuff to kind of, there's ways around it. But that was sort of what was happening. It was people who weren't suggestible. Um, like a lot of the people that EMDR work for are also good candidates for hypnosis, um, which hypnosis works on less people than EMDR does. But so I was doing all this stuff and people were liking it. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to follow these scripts anymore. I'm going to figure out how the people think. Like I like the Myers-Briggs. I wasn't giving the Myers-Briggs, but you have a sense of where somebody's levels of functioning are in different areas of thinking. And it was like in a really intuitive person, you're going to use a metaphor. You're going to be just like, feel this in your body. Okay. You're like, you're, you know, you're talking about your mom and, and your wife and, and then your job and all this stuff. We're not really talking about that. You don't like to be trapped. When you feel the walls closing in, when you're afraid that this is a limitation on you that you can't. So just feel that. What do you? And then they'd start to get all this body feeling and then we'd do EMDR and I'd get a much better result. And then the patients would tell their friends to come. 
So I was going more semantic with it, which EMDR is extremely protocol driven. Like they want you to follow a script. Um, and I mean, like Francine Shapiro was famous for saying, like, if you change my model, you are not doing EMDR. You know, if you were doing 16 movements instead of 15 on the second round, then you're not doing EMDR. Um, and so I started seeing people and I was noticing like the pupil would jump and it's totally unconscious. Cause like you can't make your pupil do that, but I'm doing the EMDRs back and forth eye movements like this. So I'd see the pupil like this go Oop, and it jumps over this one spot consistently. And the pupil would kind of wibble, like the dilation would wibble when it did that. And it was the more, the people with more early complex childhood trauma that were doing that. And so I was like, well, what happens if I stay there? That eye does not want to go there. Like I'm doing the movement and it's jumping over that spot. I won't go there. And so I just hold my finger there and kind of find a distance that they liked. And the pupil would explode and people would lose time and they would re-see things from a traumatic event. <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, what am I doing? And so I was apologizing. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, you know, whatever. The patients liked it. They were like, no, I feel like I got that out. And they were wanting more of that, but I didn't know what that was. And I'd been a therapist for two months at that point. <laughs> And so I was like reading more and more and I kept paying for all these EMDR consultations, which are incredibly with different people, but it's just a model that is very rigid. And it was like, no, just do the 16 movements and do whatever. And like, well, but this person has DID. I mean, they're, they're, they're a baby right now, or they're, they're relating to an animal alter. I can't like, you can't do EMDR on a cat. Like I don't, no, 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 just can do the 15 movements. And it was just too rigid. It didn't work. And so I was talking to more colleagues that were kind of in my world, which is not a ton of people. And um, you know, that we're trying to do the same kind of somatic and, and um, brain-based medicine that I was doing. And somebody was like, well, it sounds kind of like brain spotting. I didn't know what that was. So I looked it up and I read the book. The book had some stuff in it that was interesting, but it didn't really say what I was seeing in the eye and stuff. So I, I think it was like $400 an hour or something. And I like pulled money together and talked to David Graham because he invented brain spotting. And I, and I had these people that were wanting this therapy, but I didn't want to hurt them. And I didn't know what I was doing. And they were saying it was helpful. But it was just like, you know, there wasn't a map and I was overwhelmed. I didn't have the, you know, I didn't have the confidence to, and also like, you don't want to be hubristic and just decide that, you know, everything, even if it feels right, you do need to check in with research and, and people that have been in the field longer than you. So I talked to David and it was incredibly helpful. And he was like, yeah, you discovered exactly what I discovered. Like you're moving your, like he was an EMDR clinician who just quit <laughs> moving his fingers where he felt like there was a response from the patient. But, you know, he could see that I was kind of green and he was like, you got to do it. You don't know what they're feeling. You have to go do it. So I tried to get into brain spotting and no one here would do it. At that time, there were two people in the city that I could find on Psychology Day and the Internet and everything that had the training. One of them wouldn't see me. She was like, oh, you know, I don't I got the training, but I don't really like that. Um, and then the other person was not working because of COVID because it's during COVID. So I paid for it to the tra the phase one training to do it online. And I was like, this is going to be every other training that I go to. I'll network and there'll be cool people and I'll get a couple techniques and then I'll mix them with the other techniques that I have. And, you know, I just never committed to one model and was like, I'm a DBT therapist. That's all I do. I'm going to do 30 years of DBT trainings. You know, I'm very integrative and why does this work? Who does it work for? How do you tell which kind of person's diagnosis and personality is going to like this? It's doing the wrong kind of therapy for the wrong kind of person. You know, it's not nothing wrong with the therapy, but they just don't think that way. Um, and so then when it came, when I did it, I was like, and it was on a computer screen. It wasn't even a person. I was like, this isn't going to work. EMDR didn't do anything. But, uh, and I dissociated for like 20 minutes. Like they had to get the provider to come into the like uh, digital room to advise the other candidate because I was just gone. And I felt like 
this huge psychedelic experience where it was like, oh, there's this awful thing that doesn't really fit into language that's like under my life. And when I'm learning to help somebody or I'm talking to impress somebody or I'm like wanting to drink alcohol or wanting to, you know, like go socialize, I'm trying to get away from this thing. All of it is compensation for this place where I don't feel. And again, it doesn't quite fit into language because you're in a part of the brain that's not the prefrontal cortex stinky brain. It is the brainstem. You know, it's the subcortical brain where what, what it does is it's learned how to hold emotion, very base emotion physically, you know, through muscle posture and things. And emotionally, what do I do with this? So it's very primal, you know, like the information that's down there is like, can I, you know, for one example, like, can I be vulnerable? No, I'm not allowed to be vulnerable because that'll get me hurt. I have to be angry if I'm vulnerable. So every time somebody's sad, their body's going into an anger stance. And But those aren't conscious decisions. They're underthinking. You don't get into those by thinking. You get into those by feeling them. And I had been in all these different kinds of therapy that I do because I believe you shouldn't just do it, the training. You should be in it as a patient. So I've been in all these different kinds of therapy. And I got got something different out of all of them. But I'm able to entertain the therapist and I'm able to make the problem funny. And I'm able, and brain spotting, I just couldn't. I got dragged into hell and it was great. Um, And afterwards, like I went up and my wife was like, because the trainings are really long. So many trainings in this profession are just like, okay, now we're going to take a, a two hour break for five minute activity. And oh, it looks like we're done at three, even though we were supposed to go to six. Here's your 13 CD hours and brain spotting. Everyone was like engaged and into it. And we ran over. And so I'd been in the basement for like, you know, eight hours or something. And I went up and my wife was like, how was your training? And I was just crying. And I was like, I don't know how to do this. Like I found something that I don't know how to do. And I, that hadn't happened to me. And she was like, good. And I was like, yeah, no, I mean that, you're right. Like I will be grateful in time, but right now I'm just so overwhelmed. And the processing was really wild um, from it because your emotions are kind of, um, you're digging up these younger parts of self. And a lot of times you don't know what you're de- process. Most of the time with brain spawning, there's kind of like a, you do the movement in the room where you're looking at a pointer and the therapist finds an eye position. And what you feel is pretty primal physical reaction. Right? There's some emotion that's pretty base of like, I want to get away or I want to move forward or I feel seen and something, but it's not complex emotion. It's pretty physical in the room. And then, you know, later on when you're processing, you start to get these like emotions and the emotions are, are like, they don't fit your environment. Like, why do I feel vulnerable or why do I feel angry or what? And it's not like you feel bad. You're just, your emotions don't quite make sense. Something's been unlocked. And during that period, there's a lot of dreams. Like after the first day, my friend who was in the training with me called me and she was like, did you have her dreams? And I was like, no. And I started thinking, I was like, oh, yeah, they were like wolves with glowing eyes looking in my house at my kids. And this was like very mythy. And I don't normally dream like that. Yeah, I guess I did. Um, and then, and then you know, so there, I sat in something for a while. And then the obsession of like, what is this? Was this when I was two? Was it when I was five? Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I can't tell. That just slows you down from finishing it. You know, when you fully let go and you're just like, I cannot feel this anymore. I'm just done. Like, I can't be angry, whatever. If an emotion, if the memory is going to come back, and it's usually not repressed memory, it's just you never would have thought that was the problem. You would have gone in and talked, and the best analyst in the world never would have been able to actually show you what the problem was, but your deep brain knew it was smarter than anybody. Um, and so when it came back for me, it was like, yeah, if I had remembered that, I would be angry. But I've been angry for three days. Like, I, yeah, this is, I'm glad I have the picture that went with that. I'm done. And EMDR was always kind of backwards for me, where it was like you dug, you, the person felt better in the room. And you were making room for them to leave and then they felt worse. And then you had to process that. And then they're coming back. 
and you're going all the way to the bottom of one issue, which takes a couple sessions sometimes with EMDR. But, you know, it's like dad hit me and I, this is what I'm doing and he shamed me and then they feel wonderful and they're free and then they completely decompensate because a month later, you know, you've made room for this new memory to come up and the new memory is like, yeah, and mom was watching and you thought she was the protector, but she let that happen. And then they totally decompensate again. And brain spotting just doesn't do that. I mean, it goes to the root of the thing. And the processing is a lot more intense. You have to be careful with it. But it's outside of the room. It's not in the room. EMDR, what you get in the room is what you get. Brain spotting, you're opening the door for someone to heal themselves. And I, I think gravitate towards things that are a little bit more shamanistic, a little bit more experiential, that I'm going to hold you until you're able to hold this yourself. And and so I, I liked it. It worked with all the things that I was doing already. And, and that was that was kind of what where I went. That's so interesting. I yeah, I love the the fact that you got to experience it yourself. And I I guess I want to um, go more into it. Like so f for for training for it, would you like take turns leading someone through brain spotting and having it done to you? And also like yeah, it's almost spiritual. Oh, I'm sorry, Jay. Go ahead. I was just gonna say also like how long was the training and how many sessions did you do? So the training is I don't know how many hours it is. I mean, I guess it's well, I mean it's eight in the morning until basically seven at night, and you get an hour lunch break. But there's no wiggle room. There's no like oh take a three hour. I mean that you're in there doing stuff, and it's all weekend and a Friday, so it's you know three days, and it's a lot cheaper than EMDR too. I mean I think I paid like five thousand dollars or something for a weekend of EMDR, and I feel like it was kind of oversold. Like they really could have taught that to you. <laughs> in less time but there's just a ton of like oh no these secrets of psychology are so powerful that you have to really you know it's like it's not kung fu man like you know just tell me the thing you figured out i'll decide if he is it or not but brain spotting i i don't i think it was the training was like maybe 700 dollars for an entire weekend which is all the ce's you need for renewal period um and and so i did it and um the training is very experiential in that you're doing it to someone and then they're doing it to you. And then you're watching the practitioner and the big group do that same thing to one person as like an expert guide them through it. And everyone's watching, but you're like healing together. I mean, therapists are some of the most damaged people and we also run from it more and don't want to admit it because there's this insecurity of, well, if I'm traumatized, how can I be a trauma therapist it's like easily? Um, and so you're watching that and it, is neat brain spotting trainings. They um, one of the things they do that some of the other ones don't is that they require you to have a mental health license. But if you're part of like an indigenous group or you're part of like a traditional healing group, they let you come in too. You don't have to have a license. So you're in there sometimes with people that are like on a Native American reservation and they're doing more traditional tribal medicine than also this. And um, I don't know the term for it. I don't know if tribal medicine is is right. Um, but people that are part of a spiritual tradition that is um, you know First Nations. And, um, you're watching these people heal and get upset and like go through this. And it, it was really was like, can I just go here every Sunday? Like, can we just do this? This is such a powerful thing. Um, so it almost is spiritual. It's totally experiential. And you're watching all these people go into the darkest places and realizing how different that is because of our backgrounds. But when you really sit with it, how similar it is and that we're all kind of running from the same thing. and Our vulnerable child is all kind of coming from the same place and just sitting with the dissonance of that and, you know, it um it's it's powerful i don't know if that is answering your question yeah no it is and that's just seems like such a, a unique experience um well, I, I did phase two training just to get more brain spotting 
because I realized how much that helped me and how much I needed help. Even though I thought it was fine, you know, before I just noticed, I mean, just small things where it was like, okay, I'm angry. I have a little bit more time to recognize that and know that. And I don't have to make my shoulders go like they can just like my body doesn't have to respond to that emotion in the way that it wants to. Um, and so like kind of by coincidence, I started working with, um, a myofascial release practitioner. I don't know if you're familiar, are you familiar with myofascial or Rolf massage? Have you ever heard of those? Yeah. So they're, they're in a similar school and there's some people that are, say they do intuitive meditation or body work or something, and they're doing a similar thing. Um, but it's not a fun massage. It's not like this is a sore place. I'm going to rub on that. Um, it's like, there's an idea and, and somebody who is a physical therapist obviously has smarter language than I do to talk about the stuff. But um, the fascia are like the muscle web. They kind of learn to hold together in the way that you hold emotion, you know, in the way that you hold your body a lot. So if you have like a sore spot or something in it, even though that has healed, your posture may still be compensating for it because the muscles have kind of built around you walking a certain way. So my fascial release, like they rip the fascia open. It's like, almost kind of painful and then your body like lets go of the way it's holding emotion physically and then a ton of times there's a huge emotional release afterwards where somebody comes out and they just feel rage and then they remember stuff from childhood and that's kind of what i'd always heard about it so i had patients that were seeing this one person who was particularly intuitive and we started getting roi signed by patients to talk to each other because the patient the work was supporting the other person and it was like you know, Aaron was like, how can you see that in somebody's eye? And I'm like, how can you see that in somebody's back? Like, I know this person's case history is that they're, you know, what happened to them as a kid, but they present like a very A-type CEO that's totally in charge. And she would just touch two muscles on their back and be like, well, I feel like there's a little girl in here, you know, that is wanting to hide something. It's not a running away response. It's like a, I want to curl up and, and don't be seen. And just like, how do you know that? Um, but it would, especially with more complex trauma cases where you're trying to keep somebody stable and it's going to be, um, and I mean, because I really, brain spotting can do in years what used to be done, or I mean, it can do in months what used to be done in years and in and, and weeks what used to be done in months. Um, but there are some longer term disorders. DID is going to be one of them. Dissociation is kind of hard because somebody's losing um, time. Uh, well, there's a lot of reasons, but it's just harder to make that progress stick. Um, but with the myofascial release, she's going into the mind through the body and I'm going into the body through the mind and the people would start to notice all these things. And like, I, if somebody just locks up totally, like I can tell, cause a lot of times during brain spotting, somebody's like, I'm like, notice your hands. And they're like, I'm not moving my hands. And then I'm like, look at your hands. And they're like clenched together. And they're like, Oh wow. Um, but I can tell something's going on in your back when you're like this, but I can't touch you. You know, like I can't be like, Oh, this is tight. You know? And I don't know what I'm doing if I did touch you because I don't know muscles. I didn't go to school for that. Um, but Erin could pretty easily, I'd be like, there's this weird response. We're hitting a block. It's like she's kind of to go two different ways, see what you notice. And she would be like, okay, well, your body has this thing in between two places that are normally sore, but no one's sore here because your your muscles are pulling against each other. Go into this posture. What do you notice? Go to this posture. What do you notice? And one person remembered that they had, um, you know, mom yelling at him to sit up straight like a lady but also there was another message they got from mom that you're bad you should be small and hide and so the back is like pulling against itself because they're trying to do two postures at once you know i never would have gotten there just looking at because i can't see that you know i don't i don't and so with taproot what i really would love to do is have it 
have myofascial release people there, have there be a dietitian there, have there be, so you can come in and it's, it's not quite an IOP, but it's an IOP ish buffet, you know, where the clinicians are all talking to each other and everyone's in this world. And that's what I'm trying to build. You know, I don't know if that works. Um, social workers are not super wealthy. I'm married to a teacher. Uh, so it's like, you know, we're doing as we can, but, um, I'd really like that to exist. And I really just wanted to build the place that I wanted to work. Yeah, that's very cool. I love the like holistic nature that you're trying to bring into your practice. I think that's so important. And it's it's not against evidence-based practice. I don't criticize evidence-based practice on my blog. I criticize the way it's used. You know, it's almost like we've decided that well, research invents new models of therapy and then you follow that. And it's like, no, it doesn't. Clinicians in private practice and the market invent new kinds of therapy that people want and then you guys figure out why it works 10 years later. Like that's that's why I want to be on this end of it. And we just get, I mean, you've seen we have a YouTube and a podcast and whatever. We just get hate mail from people that are like, you know, clinical psychologists that are like, oh, you can't do that. This actually is whatever. And it's like, why do you have this emotional reaction to just me being like, hey, I saw this. It kind of worked. It's effective. If that works for you, cool. Not, you know, like, you know, but there's this, there's this anger at like anything new. And especially I think a ton of people are really mad at EMDR. Like you, when I worked in the hospital, you saw that more. You had these people that would go on rants about it or something. And I think it just doesn't fit into it. Like when you're researching something that for certain diagnoses is, works miracles for 30% of people and then doesn't do anything for the other 70%, then they keep being like negligible to non-effective. And it's like, no, you just can't turn this into a number. You know, what it is is when people, because things like intuition, you, you can't, you may guess the Myers-Briggs is trying to turn that into a number, but Things like how hypervigilant is the patient? What is their control instinct? How rigid is their ego? When you, you start trying to turn all those into a numbers on a study, that study is too complicated to do. Um, and so figuring out who it works for, other than, you know, works for this diagnosis, but not that one. What's going to work for 30% of, of PTSD patients? It's going to not work for 70% of them. And when you average that together, it's going to look like it doesn't work, but that's not really what's happening. So it's almost like we've kind of blinded ourselves by trying to turn everything into this you know, quantifiable number when a lot of it is more qualitative. Um, and there's a resistance to that because it's harder to publish and it's harder to turn into a randomized controlled trial, which is, you know, those are fine if you're doing medication or something. But I think for a soft science, it's making it a hard science when it, it, it can't do that. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, my next question, we only have a couple questions left. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Can you talk about... Uh, You've, you've talked a little bit about the, the intuition that the uh, brain spotting practitioner has to use in sessions. So can you talk mm -hmm. about this role of the practitioner in the brain spotting session? Like what what is their purpose and how are they meant to guide the patient? So when David wrote brain spotting um, and the trainings, like he's very into and i haven't he hasn't told me this i'm just kind of like reading through the lines when i look at the stuff like well i think a lot of it is a reaction to that he trained with francine shapiro and she was so rigid that brain spotting has this openness like when i was meeting with him for the first time i was like and granted i mean i had all this insecurity and was very green as a therapist i've been a therapist for two months but i was like yeah you know because the whole time i've been saying like the body remembers something different than the intellectual mind and so your body remembers that there's a black hole here and i was always doing this trauma map and making them be like, don't think about it, but no, feel the experience of it and then do EMDR and then they would go into this whatever, which is why I was seeing the eye wibble so much as I wasn't trying to be like, 
remember the time when you were two on the pier and you felt disempowered. Now remember the time that you feel empowered. I was just pushing them into an experience and the bottom of the brain is lighting up. Um, and he was, but so it makes sense that that's going on. And so the, the body also remembers where the eye was looking. So I think I'm finding that position, but that's not in the book. And he was like, you, yeah, I mean, sometimes, but you can't know that you can't say that you're, you're trying to cognitivize this too much. You have to just go there and be open to whatever comes up. And so there's a concept in brain spotting um, called the tail of the comet that the patient's experience is just something you're following. When you try and get ahead of it and say, oh, your jaw's locking up because mom wouldn't let you talk, you're turning off the process. You're making them think. You just have to be behind them and letting it go and be in the tail of the comet and then know that that plane can land itself. And that's why practitioners that want more of a cognitive structure or manualized therapy have issues with brain spotting is that they haven't, and I've seen that when I'm trying to train people, is like, they watch the person go into this place that's distressing and overwhelming and they don't know that that place leads somewhere good because they haven't done their own work enough to be okay with holding somebody else's pain because pain is bad. I just got to turn it off and they stop. And it's like, I can teach you how to move the pointer. I can teach you what I'm looking for in the eye and what a bloom is. And when you watch somebody thinking because the pupil shrinks back down and I can teach you that, but I can't make you comfortable with witnessing pain and i can't make you like it feels icky to them it feels like oh i can't do this even when the patient's saying that they're interested in it um and so i think uh you really have to have done your own work and that's why the training is so experiential so with the intuition part i mean what you're doing is intuitive because if somebody's thinking brain spotting is not really working you know when, when it's working on a when you're deep in processing you're not really in the prefrontal cortex at all a lot of times, if it takes five minutes for me to get somebody down there, they think the session was five minutes long. Like they don't know the hour passed. Or if it takes 30 minutes for me to get them down there, then they think it was 30 minutes long because your clock just stops. Um, and nothing really fits into language. And sometimes with people that are trying to tell me what happened, like there's this need to have somebody else be able to understand the experience. I'm, I'm like, hey, look, you came out with a knowledge but it's not intellectual, right? Like, you know something different now than you knew 10 minutes ago. Like, but it doesn't fit into language. Like, as you're trying to fit this into language, it's cheapening it. Just sit with it and understand and sit with it a minute and then, and then they'll sit and, and you watch something integrate. And then they have a ton, a ton of times people come out of the thing and they just start talking and they're incredibly, uh, it's like incredibly profound, you know? And then they're like, I wish I could talk like this all the time, you know? <laughs> but, the intuition is knowing when somebody's processing and knowing when to shut up. Um, the thing in brain spotting is they, they say all the time is um, turn off your brilliance. You know, even if you know what's happening or you think you have an understanding of it, your job is to get them there and you talk as long as you need to, to get them there. And then once they're there, be quiet and let them go and be what they need. Maybe they need to say, is this okay? Am I allowed to get to do that? Yeah, you're fine. You know, but you don't want to start talking too much. You just want to talk enough to reassure them that it's safe and that they can feel a bad experience without them being bad or whatever is going on with the person. So um, generally people that have had a ton of therapy are really good candidates for it because they've already done all the little intellectual hoops. They already know what self-defeating and healthy and coping strategies and protective parts and all that. And they're just ready to experience the, the, the bad place. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I have done a few brain spotting sessions and um, what you mentioned about like the urge to try and get someone else to understand what you just went through mm -hmm. is so so strong 
And yeah. I've never just, I've just never heard it explain, someone explain it in that way, but that's exactly how it feels. It's so interesting. Well, and I think that there's a really, there's an urge, you get, you get weird referral streams in this business. Like I was seeing a bunch of people that were part of the apostolic Pentecostal church where your women aren't allowed to cut their hair. And there's a lot of real restrictive rules for a little bit. And then I was seeing like a lot of CEOs at one point where the you know, referral streams just change. It's interesting, but there was one point where I was seeing all these people that were kind of like executives and they tend to have a lot of trauma, like because they come from poverty or they come from trauma and then they have this like strong, I'm never going to blame anyone else for anything. Everything's on me. And then, but you know, that pusher energy of like one more thing, one more thing. I don't care if what you're doing is healthy or unhealthy. One more email, one more page in the book, one more Netflix, one more drink, one more whatever. It's just not wanting you to feel. And they tend to burn out, you know, 30, late 30s, 40, because you already have the, you know, trophy wife and you already have the million dollars and you're already at the top of the company. There's nothing else to go to. And so a lot of times when they'd come in, you know, you'd teach somebody this language and you'd do a little bit of brain spotting and they'd be like, oh, wow, okay, just so you know, I gave out your card to my board and, you know, you're going to see them whenever. And it's like, okay, great, thank you. But our mating list is a year and none of these people are ever going to call me because you just showed up kind of elated and weirded them out. And um, what you're doing is you want to take everybody with you. You're feeling the hard part of the hero's journey. You're feeling the hard part on this story wheel of like, you start off with the big party of everybody and and there's this, it's easier to be like, if my dad had done this, then life would have been better. And like, what if everybody did this? All the political problems would be solved. And like, oh, oh, we would. And it's true. Like, but they won't. And this has gone on since the Bronze Age. And you're going to have to go somewhere where you are fundamentally alone. And even at a certain point, the therapist cannot go with you. And and those are the places I think where non-death-based therapies they don't. That's where you lose patience, and you're like, well, I guess they're done. But really, you weren't prepared to do the next thing, which is to to really be honest with somebody and help them understand this next place that you're going. I can't ever understand. I can hold it and I love it, but it's yours, and I I I can't even help you with this part. And the beginning is you want to take the world with you into therapy, and then after that, you okay, well, great, but my therapist is making room for this, and then there's a place that's very deep in where you're alone, and I think you go there and brain spotting pretty quickly. Um, and giving patients a language for that makes it okay. But that language is going to be a symbol or a metaphor because it's underneath language. It's in the deep, deep brain. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, but no, it does. Kind of makes it metaphors probably. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, great. This has been a great conversation. And my last question is one that I ask all my guests this season because I want to put an emphasis on the importance of self-care to my audience. So what is one thing that you do each day to maintain mental wellness? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it is definitely taking a toll on my physical and mental health to just start the clinic because it's like eventually you can support admin staff. You, you'll have enough money to be able to hire somebody. But you know, until you get to five or six people, it's all me. So it's like, I'm coming home at nine o'clock and then I got to schedule patients via email from the voicemail till 10 or 11. And, um, then I got to be back in the office at 7am and get kids to school and everything before that. So like, um, it's hard. I mean, you really decide where do I want to choose? Where do I want to invest this? I mean, I tell people your life's kind of a garden, right? And the garden is this big, like you cannot grow everything. You can't have an orchard and whatever. You want to pull weeds, you want to whatever, but you got to make a decision. What am I going to grow here? And um, I think people, when when you're not, a lot of times trauma patients are kind of frantic and they're kind of trying to do everything, but there's not a mindful, like, what do I want to do? And Taproot was really something that I wanted to do. I felt like 
even if this if this doesn't work, that's fine, you know. But if it does work and I didn't do it, then I regret that. You know, what do I if I look back on my life when I'm 80 and I'm like, if I'm 80 tomorrow and I look back on my life, what am I sad I didn't do? You know, um, that would have been one of the things because I think it gives people something in an area where it's needed. Um, but also, uh, so, I mean, just deciding where you want to do things that will be a deficit to your mental and physical health, because some things are worth it. I think that is one thing. Um, I, um, I spend a lot of time with my kids. I spend a lot of time in nature. The weekends are really just for my kids, you know, um, while they nap or something, I'll go to do the administrative work, but, uh, I hike a lot with them and I want them to know a lot about nature. Um, I want that to be something that's not just a big scary monolith, but that they understand the systems that, okay, yeah, moral mushrooms only grow where there's these kinds of trees because they like the roots and you're breaking that into something that they can understand and start to see systems pretty early and be comfortable with it. Cause I saw so many patients whose kids lived in front of an iPad and they were like, well, if I take them outside, then they get upset. And it's like, Ooh, I'm going to want to wait till they're 12 to start trying to go outside. Um, I really like gardening and um, I, I write. I'm a writer. I have a lot of things that are just kind of for me and I publish some things. Um, but the podcast has been a pretty neat creative outlet too because I started it for SEO. Like Google really likes, we didn't have enough money to afford the SEO the big firms can. So if I didn't do it, it wouldn't have happened. So you can pay somebody, you know, thousands of dollars to write tons of content that nobody wants to read, or you can write something that people actually click on. And either one of those gets you the same result. Um, and so there were some things that I'd written about Leon Krier as an architect who was like pretty, uh, he was really important in the founding of new urbanism. So like Seaside, Florida is a development he did, or um, Alice Beach is kind of based on all that stuff. And uh, I'd written an article about Jungian archetypes uh, in architecture and that his work kind of was doing that, that um, postmodern classicism, a lot of that was um, similar. And I mean, it's not a therapy blog in Alabama. Like I knew that it, that somebody probably is not going to be reading that in Birmingham and coming to therapy, but it was niche enough that, you know, people would get it and click on it. And you're writing for an audience of that and it helps SEO. So I had an email from Leon Creer that was like, hey, great, this is great. It was like, like you work for the King of England, like you're, you're the royal architect, like what are you doing reading this? And so I was like, well, you want to do an interview? And then it just kind of kept going where it, 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 a lot of the stuff I was writing connected with people who I had grown up reading and liked. David Tacey was an author I read all through school who is knows probably more, some people that know a whole lot about the history of the profession kind of have a bias or they have like an ax to grind. Ta I think David Tacey is probably the most knowledgeable person about the history of psychoanalysis and Jungian psychology and Adlerian psychology and all of that with no ax to grind. That's just kind of looking at it objectively because he's not a therapist, you know, he's, he's a patient of therapy, but he's not a, and so when I had read some stuff, he agreed to talk to me and I'd wanted to talk to him since I was in college, but he's a busy guy. So that felt good that he kind of knew who I was. And, um, and that's just been really neat. Like uh, you see, you get to talk to people and you only get a glimpse, a little bit of a glimpse of who they are through their art. But when you really get to speak with them, a lot of times, like, um, I don't know, you see their humanity in a way that was interesting for me because I'm growing up, you know, getting to be middle aged. And so you grow, you read these people when you're younger and then you get to talk to them. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, just a lot of emotion there. Very cool. Yeah, I I think it's great that you are able to make time for like nature and writing and all of these things, despite 
how busy you are because I know it's very important. Well, I'd be interested if you have time to hear about your experience with brain spotting and stuff. I always think people that um, are kind of creative and intuitive and um, the patient's experience is almost more interesting than the therapist, like yeah. I can tell you. But I mean, I'm holding a stick, you know, you're the <laughs> peeling the meat off your soul to talk directly to God or wherever yeah. you're going. So. No, it was, um, it's, it, for me, I've, I've done three sessions. Um, and my therapist is a somatic therapist and I have some complex trauma and like attachment trauma. And so we were, we d- dive into that. For me, it's such a somatic experience. Like every time we go into session pretty quickly, I start getting like full body tingles, tingles in my hands and my feet, um, Mm -hmm. like getting hot and cold in my like face and cheeks. Um, and then also getting really, really tired, like tired to the point where Mm -hmm. it's like hard to keep my eyes open sometimes. Deep sleep. Yeah. And my therapist, which I love this, she, she gives me so much space to just feel and then say whatever I feel compelled to say. She doesn't use a lot of words and doesn't talk mm-hmm. too much. And I feel like that's good for me because I, I've i done a lot of therapy. So it's kind of easier for me to like talk through things, but to just sit with it and feel it is harder for me. And she gives me a lot of space to do that, which is amazing. So it's been great. It's been like literally every time after I do brain spotting, I take a nap after and like, that's the best practice. Yeah. You want to just do it. At a, you don't want to do brain spotting right before you got to take the bar. No, no. <laughs> Educating patients about when to do it is important. Some people, some of the people that have had a bad experience that didn't happen, you know, you don't want to scare them, but you also, you, you need time to process. Yeah, for sure. That, that time to rest afterwards was definitely key for me. Even like, making sure to not do work the rest of the day and just doing self-care the rest of the day to kind of integrate the experience was also important for me. But yeah, I um, I don't know how many like more sessions we're going to do. We kind of did it in a period where um, triggers around the trauma were coming up more frequently, and, and now I'm in a place where those triggers aren't as frequent. Um but it, it's, like you were saying, a very profound, spiritual, almost psychedelic experience. Yep. Um, before we wrap up, I do want to give you an opportunity to um, share some ways that myself and people listening can stay up to date with the work that you're doing, get more information on Taproots, and just stay up to date with you and whatever you have going on. Yeah, I mean, um, we have a website, gettherapybirmingham.com, um, and there's some information on there. I don't keep up with it as much as I used to because I'm just seeing more patients now that in the beginning you have all this time to market yourself and then you stop because you're busy helping people yeah. and that's what feeds you. Um, we do a podcast, which if anybody ever wants to go on and talk about this stuff, um, you know, you could come on and do an episode if you want to. Um, like, uh, we've got like guests queued up. I just haven't, um, I just haven't had time. I keep canceling the, the things because my Mondays fell up. Um, and um, so that's there. It's, you know, sporadically updated. And then um, I'd, I'd like to to write a book with a myofascial release practitioner about both sides to help, you know, 
physical therapists understand therapy and therapists understand physical therapy and, and the, the way they fit together um, and be more cross-disciplinary, but that hasn't even started. So it's not like it's coming out. Um, yeah, but uh, the we, we have a podcast and I think the, the big thing is just uh, figuring out that there's more to therapy than has been taught in the past 20 years in school and looking at the history of the profession. I mean, I think Gestalt and Jung, some of Jung is overwhelmingly dense. Um, David Tacey's books on Jung are a really good primer on what he's saying, you know. Um, but just reading like case studies that Fritz Perls, the founder of Gestalt Therapy did, or like looking at some of the silly fights in between like Freud and Adler and Jung and, you know, all of that stuff, I think you're seeing that was what was valuable and informative to me. You know, it was their case studies. Um, and I think I have more of the language of kind of like psychoanalysis than most practitioners do because they don't learn it. And, and it's still kind of around in New York, um, and to a certain extent, parts of California, but really it's gone, but you still have to know some of the early conceptions of the profession. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I think if people are interested in this kind of therapy, you really have to know the history of it. And if I ever have time to do the big multi-episode podcast to finish that, it'll be about the history of, of all that stuff. But I mean, the big thing is like, I would like people to adopt this model. Like if Taproot works, I want there to be more collectively owned, you know, hopefully you know, one day we'll get to a point where right now it's losing, you know, right now it's not anything that you would want to own as a financial incentive, but like eventually if these things are sustainable and whatever, it's a cool model. And that's kind of why I wanted to, to try it. Um, but it's not, you don't have to look me up. I mean, I'm happy to talk to anybody that wants to talk to me, but, um, if you're interested in this kind of medicine, you know, build these clinics, start getting this knowledge. I mean, I did this because I was an outpatient social worker driving 20 minutes to see all these patients. And I just got every audiobook and every talk from the 1970s to the 1990s that I could find. And you can't just decide, okay, I'm going to go get a psychology degree and then I'm going to read four years of literature. Like I'd had all the time to absorb all this stuff because I was listening to it in my car and I was reading it at night. And that's what let me go into private practice in a way that I never could have if I defaulted out of school. Um, and then been like, well, I guess I know CBT now, so I'm going to try this. Um, so, I mean, I just think find the people that are curious. That's invaluable. And then um, continue to learn about the history of the profession. And, and then that will inform the future of it. Um, but if you want to go into private practice, you know, through us or through build something like it, I'm always happy to talk to anybody that wants to, to call me. And um, if you are in this world and want to be a podcast guest, send me an email. Um, but yeah, good luck to you and what you're doing, because I think you're helping patients understand the language of this, where if a patient got a therapy podcast from, you know, ther that's for therapists, they may not feel comfortable with it or they may not um, know all the language, but you're kind of being a bridge between two worlds, which is, is, which is cool and very needed. Thank you. Yeah, that is exactly what I'm trying to do. So well, good luck. thank you. And thank you so much for being here today. This was a really great, rich conversation, and I know it's going to be informative for a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I always enjoy having conversations about topics that I already have knowledge on because I always end up learning something new. So I hope you all did too, and I want to give a huge thanks to Jennifer and Joel for coming on and providing so much info and insight. If you'd like to see more of their work, their links are in the description of this episode. As always, if you're interested in following the Students of Mind team, our links are in the description of this episode as well. 
I've been posting more on TikTok about my personal mental health journey, so if you're interested in coming along on the journey, you can follow me there. If you have a moment, please leave a rating and review for this podcast. This is really helpful for me as it gets the podcast into more ears and gives new listeners an idea of what to expect. You can leave a review by scrolling to the bottom of the Students of Mind show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or by using an app like Podchaser. Thank you so much again for listening. I hope you learned something new or resonated with something you heard today, and I will see you all next episode. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.